The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that just as we have been learning throughout this entire journey through the book of Acts, and as we heard last week, that this is truly a a book of the Bible about your Holy Spirit working and making known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, So we thank you that your message and your word prevailed um, throughout these these cities in the early church. Um, We thank you for those who who by your, your power believed Um, believed in the name of Christ, and believed in salvation. Um, And so we pray as the church today that that would just continue, um, that we as the church would be empowered and mobilized to go out and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, just like we see Paul doing here. Um, And would we remember that you gave us the same promise, that you will be with us, that you uh, will go with us and not forsake us. Um, God, you are more powerful than than any of our own plans to spread this good news. You're also more powerful than the evil and the darkness in this world. And so I just pray that the gospel would be spread throughout our city and throughout the world. Um, And we we just praise you for that work. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mary. Well, good morning. I am delighted to be here with you especially with all the uh, collegians. Is that where we go? Woo, woo, is that right? Uh, I'm glad to see you've got a marriage conference going uh, as well, so I highly recommend that. Um, This past May, let's see, we celebrated 27, my wife Pam and I, celebrated 27 years of happy marriage. It was, yes, thank you. It was our 35th anniversary. So there you go. That's all you need to know. My name is Jeff Shu, and um, I am the executive director of Flourish San Diego. We like to say our name is our aim, and uh, our work is very interested in helping churches navigate the great changes in culture so we can form the kinds of people that love our city to life. And uh, that's a very challenging time for the church in general, uh, and uh, so it's a great pleasure for us to kind of be coming alongside congregational leadership. 
Grace City is one of my favorite churches, uh, simply because I know so many of you here, and the more I get a chance to talk with you and the things that you're up to in, in uh, life and in ministry, the more excited I am about the way in which uh, the Lord is using you and will use you. So thank you for the invitation to speak. I know you didn't invite me, Randall did, so um, if you have any problems, you're welcome to talk to him about it. Um, you are working through the book of Acts, and... Um, in Acts chapter 18, you know, last week you're talking about uh, Paul's message in Athens, um, which is, of course, really quite interesting. It's fascinating to me. I had a friend that went to go uh, to the Areopagus, that did a tour of uh, Greece. And you can go and tour the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, and you can see a plaque with uh, the words uh, of uh, Paul's sermon um, in Greek, uh, which is, uh, of course, if you're in Greece, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but this time, we now find Paul moving on from Athens. He's 51 miles up the road in a town called Corinth. And uh, this morning's passage in chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, I think there's going to be some fascinating stuff that we will learn from Paul. And if there's an organizing principle that I'd like you to kind of have in the back of your head for this morning's message, it is simply this. And that is that Paul models for us a way of living that allows us to see our entire lives, our entire lives, our whole lives, as being critically important for God's purposes for us, as well as being critically important for God's uh, redemptive purposes in the world. Paul's life, this is the idea, and we look in chapter 18, Paul's whole life, um, a hint, not only what he does for ministry, but what he does for work. Right? as a tent maker. This whole thing is something that we want to be able to embrace because God uses it all for our own well-being as well as for the well-being of the world. That's the idea. Our entire lives, from diaper changing to venture capitalizing, from preaching to doing dishes, from earning a living to living off of our earnings, all of life is significant and meaningful and life-giving. That's where we're going. We will see that as Paul is engaged in this very grueling ministry, traveling around um, the Mediterranean Sea, that in this passage, God actually calls him to very difficult work, but at the same time offers him, offers him encouragement in ministry, he also offers him encouragement regarding his work as a tent maker. And at the end of the day, I'm interested in bringing those two worlds together so that you might be able to see how your own life with Jesus and life in the workplace all comes together to um, um, allow you to pursue the, um, the life and the redemptive presence uh, of the Lord here in our own city. So, first thing I want to talk about, first point is merely encouragement for ministry. Um, I'm delighted because there's no clock in the back of the room. Uh, so, praise the Lord. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go through Acts chapter 18 to kind of get a sense of what's happening, figure out what Paul is doing, and just sort of orient ourselves. Um, Acts, of course, is sometimes descriptively called the Acts of the Apostles, and so... We're learning about how the early church grew and how it spread after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. 
Paul, it's very important to pay attention to, was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, which meant um, he, knew his, he knew his scriptures. He was also a teacher and expert in the scriptures, and he was a follower of Jesus. All of these descriptors about who Paul was is important because as you've been seeing through the book of Acts, and as you will see, all of it comes into play, and Paul leverages all of these things for the sake of allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. You know by now that the general pattern of Paul was basically to travel to a city, head to the synagogue, teach about how Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the long-awaited promise, right, uh, of a faithful God who said he was going to provide a Messiah. And so it's like he goes to the synagogue, he teaches about Jesus, riot breaks out, <laughs> he plants a church, uh, and then he moves on to the next town. Um, very interesting. Tough work. Constantly moving from town to town, debating, proclaiming, getting beat up, left for dead, encountering hostile, massive crowds, getting imprisoned. That's kind of the rhythm. Um, when I think about Paul in the book of Acts, I often think of him as, uh, describe him as a bad singer. Uh, always behind a few bars looking for the key. That's funny. Yeah, just in case you weren't concerned. Uh, yeah. So last week he's preaching in Athens on Mars Hill. Master class in evangelism. Today he's 51 miles down the road in a city called Corinth. At this point, five years earlier, it was established as a Roman, town, a Roman city. This is 44 AD. It's a port full of sailors and their notorious sailory living. Corinth is located on an isthmus. And it was fascinating. It was an important place because what would happen is they had figured out how to be able to transport ships over this four miles of land from one harbor to the other so you can avoid 80 miles of treacherous you know, sailing. And this is why it was such an important and cosmopolitan city. Um, last bit of background, uh, especially if you're new to the faith um, or you're just exploring the claims of Jesus. Um, see, growing up, I couldn't really ever make sense of how the stories of the scriptures were kind of like, sat inside history because I was just poor at history. And so there was like the Bible stories and then there was like hobbits in the Middle Kingdom. And I didn't quite know how it all fit together, you know, realizing that this is actually fiction. And yet the stories of the scripture are true and actually good historical records. Um, I say that because, you know, I didn't know how to make sense of that and perhaps you didn't either. You know, the equivalent today would be like saying, the stories of the Bible are real and true, and like, Asgard, you know, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is like fiction, okay? Um, and yet, figuring out how all this stuff went together is important. Real fiction. I say that because Paul finds himself in Corinth, and he runs across this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that were expelled from Rome with all the other Jews. And you might be like, oh, that's interesting. Well, the emperor at the time, this would have been in 49 AD, this is all the historian, the, the, his, the Roman historians have this recorded, that Claudius, the emperor in 49 AD, basically expelled the Jews from Rome. Um, and so this is 
how Aquila and Priscilla find themselves in Corinth. They probably hopped the boat and like left Italy and came here to Corinth. Now, this is really interesting because the reason that Suetonius, a Roman historian, gave for why Claudius expelled the Jews, all this is history, was because of the, in Latin, I won't say in Latin, the instigation of Christus. Who's this Christus fellow? Um, it's, many scholars believe that what was happening was that these non-Christian um, historians of the Roman story were basically acknowledging that in the Jewish communities there's this uproar about this teaching of this, this person or this Christ figure. Uh, and that's created so much turmoil there that it wasn't just Paul, because Paul hadn't been there yet. But this is happening across the known world, and 49 AD, Jews are expelled from Rome. Fascinating. Paul gets to Corinth. He finds his couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and he settles down with them. Same thing happens. Paul reasons in the synagogue. He finds opposition, receives abuse, riot. He heads next door to a non-Jewish family, right, Titius Justice, um, and continues his ministry there, kind of thumbing the nose at the synagogue, so to speak. But this Gentile now believes that Jesus is the Messiah as well. And this becomes the base from which he has his operations in Corinth. He continues to explain that, Paul continues to explain that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of the Savior for the whole world. Many believed and were baptized, this is in verse 8, including the leader of the synagogue, that had bounced Paul out. Now Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his entire family believed. Fascinating. This is a church plant, a church startup. You know how much work is involved in standing a new community of faith up. Try doing it like Paul in the midst of a, of a, of a, of a population that would be like Maybe not as receptive to your message. Um, certainly for Paul, standing in the face of government opposition. And so you can begin to get a sense of how difficult Paul's work was. You know it firsthand. You know, we also stand in the middle of a culture that at times may think the wrong things about what we believe as followers of Jesus. But all the things that people like give Christians a bad name for really have very little to do with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, which is the important thing. You are gathered here this morning because you know that your life has changed. Or you are beginning to see how the message of Jesus Christ can change your life. Or you're beginning to get a sense that the changes that you're seeking in your life can be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know that grace and, frown, uh, and forgiveness found in the gospel is sweet. You're floored that each time a little ugliness bubbles up from within your soul and you feel like you need to embark on this self-loathing and this sort of self-flagellation, beating yourself up, you know that Jesus is actually saying, wait a minute, I love you. I forgive you. There is mercy to be found at the foot of the cross. You don't have to beat yourself up. 
the gospel. That's the gospel that actually changes your life when you realize, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. And, you, and instead of beating yourself up, you hear Jesus saying, and for that sin I too died. You're forgiven. You are loved. And you begin to realize, oh my goodness, the gospel means that I am actually more sinful than I realized and yet more loved and forgiven than I could ever dare hope. And you know that the message of Jesus Christ means that I can see that stuff, I can meet it with the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, which actually gives me courage not to stuff my brokenness, but to actually explore it and bring it back to Jesus to know that it will be, I will be loved and accepted. And this is the process in which our lives get transformed. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is bringing to the known world. He may have used different words. You know, for a, a Jewish or a Gentile audience, you know, in Corinth, it might have been a little bit different. It was different in Athens when he was talking about with the philosophers and the, and the God-fearers there. He used different arguments. But it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ that breathes life into us. And so what I want to say this morning is that in this passage, in the midst of a very difficult ministry, in the midst of being misunderstood because of what you believe, as we might be today, that God offered Paul encouragement for this difficult ministry, and I would offer that, uh, suggest that God offers us the same kind of encouragement. What am I talking about? God offers people. Friends, Aquila and Priscilla, right? You're a tent maker. I'm a tent maker. Let's make tents. You know, there's also other friends that come. It was Silas um, and Timothy, if I, yeah, Silas and Timothy, who come, presumably bringing some financial support so that, you know, Paul can now uh, spend some of his attention uh, in the synagogues again. But more encouragement, because there are more friends. Atisha's Justice, the guy next door, right, who comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, begins to taste that there's good news to be had in the gospel. And they believe, come, teach from our home. Crispus, the synagogue leader. More friends. Verse 9. If it weren't enough that God were bringing people alongside to Paul, the Lord himself shows up in a vision in verse 9. He visits and he says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. I am with you. And if the Lord's presence was not enough for you, the Lord says to Paul, and I have many people in this city. The difficult work of church planting, of, of reasoning with philosophers, of trying to communicate the essence of the gospel, what Jesus Christ offers in terms of forgiveness and love and acceptance, you know, even in the face when we cannot accept ourselves, this gospel completely misunderstood. Oh, you're just riot bringers to Rome. Oh, we've heard about your reputation across the Mediterranean. Be encouraged. There are people. Let me bring friends. Let me bring fruit from your ministry. Let me remind you that I am with you. And really for you, you know, as you figure out how to um, 
learn the depths of the gospel for yourself. And as you learn how to be able to communicate that to other people and communicate that to other people in ways that they can communicate it to others, whether in your workplace or on your campuses, you're going to be misunderstood. You're, you're going to fumble for words. You're going to feel like, I don't know how to do this. It's okay. The Lord's with you. All right. There are many other people in this city and on this campus that can be an encouragement to you. There'll be fellow sojourners with you. So be encouraged. You know, the couple of the quick things here that I see in the passage uh, with the way in which um, the Lord encourages Paul on this missionary journey, and that is he encourages him to rest. Um, rest. You know, after the vision here, the Lord says, don't worry, do not be afraid. We, there's a quick little note that says that Paul stayed for a year and a half. Now, a year and a half was a long time in Paul's calendar. And in fact, sometimes we've thought about Paul's missionary journeys throughout, uh, around uh, the Mediterranean. And people just stopped the second missionary journey here in Corinth because he stayed so long. Um, it's really all just one giant journey. But he stays for a year and a half. And in many ways, I would argue that this is an opportunity for him to rest, to kind of get off, you know, how hard it is to you know, travel. Um, um, but to, 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 to have to start all over again with new relationships and find new people and wonder again if you're going to be rejected or beat up or imprisoned. Um, so he rests here. He takes on a different pace. And this is an important thing here, whether you're in your ministry or, or in whatever work you do, um, because we are embodied spirits. And our, we are physical beings, and our rest and our nutrition and how much water we drink are all critically important to our ability to be able to be who we need to be. I cannot tell you how how powerful a nap has become in my life and how it contributes to my level of, of um, spiritual maturity. But rest becomes so very important. And I think what's very important in this passage here in terms of Paul's ministry in Corinth is that um, um, this is the place where he plants the church in Corinth which you know in the scriptures allows him to write two very lengthy letters to the church in Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And I would argue that the length of those letters are not just because they were messed up, but actually because he lived with them for a year and a half, he knew the people and the circumstances and the context in which he was speaking to. And so there's something to be said for slowing down and being fully present in the places in which God has called you that will lead to the kind of influence and impact you might be able to have for the Lord. All right? Pay attention to that. Think about that. I want to accomplish. I want to do things. I want to move fast. Um, I, want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to do things. Um, and so for me, slowing down is very difficult. Think about this. Jesus... You know, at the end of his ministry, in John 17, he says, I've accomplished everything you asked me to do, Father. And he did that without Wi-Fi, no smartphones, not traveling 65 miles an hour, but he fulfilled everything that God called to do at three miles an hour, the average speed at which a person walks. There's something to be said for, being, for slowing down, being fully present, 
right? Rest. What I really want to talk about is how work and actually doing tent making was actually a restorative practice for Paul as well. Now, this is actually going to get kind of screwy because you're not going to really believe me. Next slide. A few statements that I want to make about work. First one, you were created to work. Let that one roll around your head for a little bit. What the reason why I exist is to work? All right, you're supposed to feel uncomfortable, okay? So if you're shifting, it's okay. Next one. All work, and if you're going to get persnickety, I'll say good work, but all work is intrinsically good. Now you're thinking about your jobs, and you're like, okay, you know, Jeff has lost all credibility. Our work should be, can be, an act of worship. Work as worship. And finally, work is how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay. We should probably close in prayer now. Free coffee outside. You're created to work. How in the world can you say that, Jeff? Genesis. This is so important. You really can't know what your life is about until you know what story it sits inside of. You really can't know. And if you're not paying attention to it, the story that most of you have with regard to how you think about work and how you live in this world is the narrative of various variations on it. He who dies with the most toys wins. If that's the narrative in which you live, how do you view work? I need to make enough money, I need to get enough job so I can have, you know, maybe (laughs) certainly earn a living, right? And maybe get my mom off my back. Uh, Just not speaking autobiographically at all. Um, but, you know, but that's what we think. Oh, I need to be able to save enough so that I can retire, right? That becomes a narrative. Is there another narrative? Yes, there is. There's a biblical narrative, a larger story of what God is up to in this world that can make sense of how we live inside it, including how we think about work. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We learn that God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. You have to say it in Latin, so it sounds more authoritative. Out of nothing, he creates the world. He separates the heavens from the earth. He separates the water from the land. He then populates the heavens and the waters and the land with creatures. And at the end of the sixth day, right, he places the pinnacle of creation, he places humans, humans made in the image of God that resemble him in some way. And if we know anything about who God is, by, t- by the time we get into Genesis chapter 2, it's that he's a creator. 
He's a worker. He makes stuff. And he, so he puts humans in there, creating his image. And what's he call them to do? Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and the NIV, use, NIV uses the word subdue it. The New Living Translation uses the word govern it. The New Revised Standard Version uses the word have dominion over it. Not domination, but dominion. It's the idea of stewardship. The biblical narrative says that God creates everything that we have, this, this world, and places little reflections of him inside it to make sense of the world, to make something of it. I often say that um, when God created the world, it was perfect, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't finished. It was as if he stuck his people inside the world to see what they would make of it. What would they do? How would they discover how the world was made? How would they learn how to steward the creation? And ever since then, we've been discovering that some rocks burn coal. And that ushered in a bronze age and an iron age and tools are made. And ever since then, we've been learning, like to today, how to harness the power of moving electrons so we can communicate over great distances. I wonder what my image bearers will do with this world. We've also invented the technology and the knowledge of sequencing unseen strands of DNA so that in a matter of months, humans have been able to develop a vaccine against the COVID-19 virus. But that's what it looks like to discover and to co-create with God. Figure out how the world works and steward our knowledge of how that works so you make a huge paycheck and retire in comfort. No. So you can steward what you know and what you can do, what you can create, how you work in ways that serve others, that love your neighbors to life, particularly the least among us. You're created to work. You're created in the image of a worker. Next slide. Work is intrinsically good. If you're following my train of thought, you see that our work of discovery and research and invention and innovation are all ways of serving others. All work is simply doing what we are able in order to serve what our neighbors, what our neighbors are not able to do. I have a team of people in my nonprofit that help keep the finances of our nonprofit in good shape. They put good controls in place, some are volunteers, some are paid, whether paid or unpaid, people are using their gifts, right, to serve me so I can make good decisions. They're serving our ministry, which serves pastors throughout San Diego County. And ultimately, my volunteers, around their financial gifts, some people love spreadsheets. And I love people that love spreadsheets. Because they are doing something for me that I can't do for myself. 
and ultimately helping me do what I need to do for the Lord. Have you ever thought about your love and your wizardry of spreadsheets as being a sacred, redemptive tool that can be used to serve others? Your work is more sacred than you know. Often when we think about work, we think of it as a punishment upon humans because, you know, we think of work as a bad thing. But if you stop think about it in Genesis chapter 3, the curse, the punishment for our sin was not work, but rather that work would become difficult. It would become toilsome. And in fact, God doesn't take away from us our responsibility to govern creation and to work. It's just made more difficult. And now what can happen is that now you can create a great compound, right, that can alleviate tremendous pain. But because of brokenness in the world, we can make it, um, we can market it and make a, a tremendous amount of money even if it causes addictions. I'm talking about opioids. How do we steward what God has given us? Knowledge, experience, creativity. And how can we steward it in ways that, that seek the common good, that serve people in need, and yet at the same time, can prevent and turn back the effects of sin. And may, that may even be your responsibility in your job. Your work is more sacred than you know. Next slide. Work is how we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is the, the, the great commandment, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Um... Eric. I had a lovely conversation. Where's Eric? He's not, he's hiding. Right? Um, a handyman job. Right? And well, he does a lot of things, but he starts his handyman thing on the side simply to be able to provide an opportunity for someone who's more, who has a more difficult time being employed. Right? He's got a day job, he doesn't need a side gig. But to be able to provide an opportunity for someone who has been in prison has a record. Is that amazing? These are the opportunities that sit in front of us. We've, we've got other folks here that are commercial real estate people who know how to steward all the things that they know how to do to be able to figure out how to be able to help church plants find property. How do you crack that nut? Wow. I've got friends that are interested in, starting, interested in starting a commercial cleaning business so they can provide employment, good, well-paying jobs, right, to provide childcare so single moms can be able to work. Wow. Is it possible that our work can become the way in which we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? I've got to stop. Back to Paul. The reference about Paul being a tent maker in chapter 18, verse 3, is important because it's supposed to jar us a little bit in our perspective about the difference between ministry and work. And perhaps by now you can begin to understand that God used all of our efforts, whether we call it ministry or work. Ministry. I use the air quotes 
to draw attention to the fact that we have this thing in our head that tends to separate that which is sacred from that which is secular, that which is pleasing to the Lord and that which is acceptable. When we apply that dichotomy across our work, we wind up saying that there are only a few things that you can do for a living that will actually be something the Lord can use, and then the rest of you wind up trying to figure out how to settle for a sort of second-class citizenship in the kingdom. No. This is more sacred and holy than you can ever imagine. It's the way in which we get to love our neighbors to life. It's the ways in which we get to demonstrate the excellencies of the way of, of Jesus and how the gospel can actually transform us to be the kind of people that we want to be and that they want to be. This is how we do it. In the Jewish mind, creation, heaven and earth met. That was the way it was supposed to be. The end of the story is there's new heavens and a new earth, and it meets in a new Jerusalem, a new city. Right? This arc, this narrative arc, talks about creation that starts in a garden and ends in a gardened city. The fruit of our work lasts. We might actually have 5G when we get into I'm sorry, that was a joke. It matters what we do here on earth. Okay? For Paul, as a good rabbi, he didn't separate these things. And so it was not unusual for a rabbi to have a day job because the day job was just as important and served God's purposes as the ministry that he was engaging in. It was not unusual for a rabbi. There were no white-collar jobs. Uh, they didn't have Excel back then. Um, so this was totally cool. And so if you tend to think that sacred jobs are more important than secular jobs or that Certain jobs, like white-collar jobs, are more important than blue, pink, or no-collar jobs. You're not thinking in the way in which God wants you to think. And I want you to pay attention that if you want to say, all right, Jeff, well, that's real interesting. Your Savior as a blue-collar carpenter. There's nothing less sacred or holy then uh, it's, it, there's not one thing over another. In fact, I would argue that uh, if you're in custodial services, this may be actually in, in the season of pandemic, you are doing perhaps one of the most important, significant things you can possibly do. I was talking about a janitor at an elementary school and was saying, you know what you do? You're helping to set parents at ease, keeping kids healthy. You are conducting biological warfare. For the common good. The word became flesh. John 1.14. The gospel is not a disembodied set of words. It's a person. The gospel that we are to proclaim is not just words, but in a transformed life, living through our work in ways that Love our neighbors to life. 
I just want to say um, just two cents in terms of um, bringing this all together, an encouragement for all of life, is that this is how we're supposed to live. Our entire lives are really, we have to embrace it all. And all of it as seen as the way in which we are supposed to be fully present. Not just, I'm going to teach you the gospel, but I'm going to actually serve you through whatever I wind up doing. It's not only central to us living into the fullness of what God has created us for, but also central to God's redemptive purposes for all of creation. We're to be fully present, all of us, and be faithfully present, living in our world as salt and light. For many of you that are students here today, your particular vocation, calling of the Lord right now is to learn how this world works. You're to steward this opportunity to learn about your field of study. It might involve getting more rest, no all-nighters. So whether it's engineering or biotech or computer sciences, what your ambition can be is not just to make a killing, to start, you know, some startup that you, you know, unicorn or whatever, but actually through your work, raise the quality of living for society, particularly for the least among us. You may be the one that creates the anti-Facebook Facebook. Right? Can you imagine a social network that actually contributes to the health and well-being of self-image and self-esteem, particularly for teen, well, for all of us? You may be the ones that may be harnessing AI, artificial intelligence, to be able to predict which antiviral candidates will have the greatest efficacy and thus save the most lives in our pandemic, in the next pandemic. And is it possible that the, the ministry that the Lord calls you to is precisely that? That that becomes the sacred way in which you love your neighbors to life? Stay-at-home parents, in today's culture where we value accomplishment, we often cannot see the values of raising healthy kids or having healthy marriages. The quality of our parenting and the quality of our marriages has a direct and lasting impact on the emotional health of the kids that we are cranking out and placing into this world. You may not get paid much, but the work is invaluable. It doesn't matter what you do. There's a sacred to it, sacredness to it that we're only beginning to touch. Okay? So, let me just challenge you this morning that before the presence of a God that knows how difficult it is to live out the, your Christian faith, and now I've given you a whole dimension to figure out how your following of Jesus actually allows you to live redemptively in the workplace. But the complexities of this does not go without God's encouragement, without bringing along fellow sojourners with you, without him reminding you that he's with you. But may that encouragement, off, um, may that encouragement embolden you to offer your whole lives. Not just what you consider sacred activities for him, but your whole life. All of your gifts and all of your abilities, your education, the future innovations that you might come up with, Everything that God graces you with, 
is what you get to steward in the service of others. Would you please steward your whole life as a means by which you love and worship God as well as the means by which you love your neighbor to life? I hope you will. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this interesting passage. Uh, Thank you that um, Paul did not find himself in prison in Corinth. Um, And thank you, Father, for a glimpse, just a glimpse, um, at a Hebraic worldview, one that brings heaven and earth together, that allows us to be able to recognize that there are more places in our life where we actually should be bringing heaven um, to whether our parenting or to the work that we do. Lord, would you give us the strength and the wisdom and the courage to be able to steward all that you have graces with so that we might be part of your redemptive purposes in this world. We thank you, Father. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.